Section 16 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 16. Volume 1. Chapter 8. A Day at Framheim. Part 1. In order to understand our daily life better, we will now make a tour of Framheim. It is June the 23rd, early in the morning. Perfect stillness lies over the barrier, such stillness as no one who has not been in these regions has any idea of. We come up the old sledge road from the place where the Fram used to lie. You will stop several times on the way and ask whether this can be real. Anything so inconceivably beautiful has never yet been seen. There lies the northern edge of the Fram barrier, with Mounts Nelson and Ronneken nearest. Behind them, ridge after ridge, peak after peak, the venerable pressure masses rise, one higher than another. The light is so wonderful. What causes this strange glow? It is as clear as daylight, and yet the shortest day of the year is at hand. There are no shadows, so it cannot be the moon. No. It is one of the few really intense appearances of the aurora australis that receives us now. It looks as though nature wished to honour our guests and to show herself in her best attire. And it is a gorgeous dress she has chosen. Perfectly calm, clear with a starry sparkle and not a sound in any direction. But wait, what is that? Like a stream of fire the light shoots across the sky and a whistling sound follows the movement. Hush! Can't you hear? It shoots forward again, takes the form of a band, and glows in rays of red and green. It stands still for a moment, thinking of what direction it shall take, and then away again, followed by an intermittent whistling sound. So nature has offered us, on this wonderful morning, one of her most mysterious, most incomprehensible phenomena, the audible southern light. Now you will be able to go home and tell your friends that you have personally seen and heard the southern lights, for I suppose you have no doubt that you have really done so. Doubt? How can one be in doubt about what one has heard with one's own ears and seen with one's own eyes? And yet you have been deceived like so many others. The whistling northern and southern lights have never existed. They are only a creation of your own yearning for the mystical, accompanied by your own breath which freezes in the cold air. Goodbye, beautiful dream. It vanishes from the glorious landscape. Perhaps it was stupid of me to call attention to that. My guests have now lost much of the beautiful mystery, and the landscape no longer has the same attraction. Meanwhile we have come up past Nelson and Ronneken, and are just climbing the first ridge. Not far away a big tent rises before us, and in front of it we see two long dark lines. It is our main depot that we are coming to, and you can see that we keep our things in good order, case upon case, as if they had been placed in position by an expert builder. And they all point the same way, all the numbers face the north. What made you choose that particular direction? is the natural question. Had you any special object? Oh, yes, we had. If you will look towards the east, you will notice that on the horizon the sky has a rather lighter, brighter colour there than in any other part. That is the day as we see it now. At present we cannot see to do anything by its light. 
It would have been impossible to see that these cases were lying with their numbers to the north if it had not been for the brilliant aurora australis. But that light colour will rise and grow stronger. At nine o'clock it will be in the northeast, and we shall be able to trace it ten degrees above the horizon. You would not then think it gave so much light as it really does, but you would be able without an effort to read the numbers. What is more, you would be able to read the makers' names which are marked on several of the cases, and when the flush of daylight has moved to the north, you will be able to see them even more clearly. No doubt these figures and letters are big, about two inches high and fourteen inches broad, but it shows, nevertheless, that we have daylight here at the darkest time of the year, so there is not the absolute darkness that people think. The tent that stands behind there contains dried fish. We have a great deal of that commodity, and our dogs can never suffer hunger. But now we must hurry on if we are to see how the day begins at Framheim. What we're passing now is the mark flag. We have five of them standing between the camp and the depot. They're useful on dark days when the east wind is blowing and the snow falling. And there, on the slope of the hill, you see Framheim. At present it looks like a dark shadow on the snow, although it's not far away. The sharp peaks you see pointing to the sky are all our dog tents. The hut itself you cannot see. It is completely snowed under and hidden in the barrier. But I see you are getting warm with walking. We will go a little more slowly so that you won't perspire too much. It is not more than minus 51 degrees, so you have every reason to be warm walking. With that temperature and calm weather like today, one soon feels warm if one moves about a little. The flat place we have now come down into is a sort of basin. If you bend down and look round the horizon, you will be able with an effort to follow the ridges and hummocks the whole way round. Our house lies on the slope we are now approaching. We chose that particular spot as we thought it was offer the best protection, and it turned out that we were right. The wind we have had has nearly always come from the east when there was any strength in it, and against such winds the slope provides an excellent shelter. If we had placed our house over there where the depot stands, we should have felt the weather much more severely. But now you must be careful when we come near to the house so that the dogs don't hear us. We have now about a hundred and twenty of them, and if they want to start making a noise, then good-bye to the peaceful polar morning. Now we are there, and in such daylight as there is, you can see the immediate surroundings. You can't see the house, you say. No, I can quite believe that. That chimney sticking out of the snow is all there is left above the barrier. This trap door we are coming to you might take for a loose piece of boarding thrown out on the snow, but that is not the case. It is the way down into our home. You must stoop a bit when you go down into the barrier. Everything is on a reduced scale here in the polar regions. We can't afford to be extravagant. Now you have four steps down. Take care, they're rather high. Luckily, we have come in time to see the day started. I see the passage lamp is not yet lighted, so Lindstrom has not turned out. Take hold of the tail of my anorak and follow me. This is a passage in the snow that we are in, leading to the penthouse. Oh, I am so sorry. You must forgive me. Did you hurt yourself? I quite forgot to tell you to look out for the threshold of the penthouse door. It's not the first time someone's fallen over it. That's a trap we've all fallen into, but now we know it and it doesn't catch us any more. If you will wait a second, I'll strike a match, and then we shall see our way. Here we are in the kitchen. Now, make yourself invisible and follow me all day, and you will see what our life is like. As you know, it is St. John's Eve, so we shall only work during the forenoon, and you will be able to see how we spend a holiday evening. 
When you send your account home, you must promise me not to paint it in too strong colours. Goodbye for the present. Brrrr. There's the alarm clock. I wait and wait and wait. At home, I am always accustomed to hear that noise, followed by the passage of a pair of bare feet across the floor and a yawn or so. Here, not a sound. When Amundsen left me, he forgot to say where I could best put myself. I tried to follow him into the room, but the atmosphere there, no thanks. I could easily guess that nine men were sleeping in a room nineteen feet by thirteen feet. It did not require anyone to tell me that. Still not a sound. I suppose they only keep that alarm clock to make themselves imagine they're turning out. Wait a minute, though. Lintrom! Lintrom! He went by the name of Lintrom, not Lindstrom. Now, by Jove, you've got to get up. The clock's made row enough. That's this thing. I know his voice. I know him at home. He was always an early bird. A frightful crash. That's Lindstrom slipping out of his bunk. But if he was late in turning out, it did not take him long to get into his clothes. One, two, three, and there he stood in the doorway with a little lamp in his hand. It was now six o'clock. He looked well, round and fat as when I saw him last. He is in dark blue clothes with a knitted helmet over his head. I should like to know why. It's certainly not cold in here. For that matter, I've often felt it colder in kitchens at home in the winter, so that cannot be the reason. Ah, oh, I have it. He is bald and doesn't like to show it. That is often the way with bald men. They hate anyone seeing it. The first thing he does is to lay the fire. The range is under the window. It takes up half the six feet by thirteen feet of the kitchen. His method of laying a fire is the first thing that attracts my attention. At home we generally begin by splitting sticks and laying the wood in very carefully. But Lindstrom just shoves the wood in anyhow all over the place. Well, if he can make that burn, he's clever. I'm still wondering how he'll manage it when he suddenly stoops down and picks up a can. Without the slightest hesitation, as though it were the most natural thing in the world, he pours paraffin over the wood. Not one or two drops, oh no, he throws on enough to make sure. A match, and then I understood how Lindstrom got it to light. It was smartly done, I must say, but Hassel ought to have seen it. Amundsen had told me something of their arrangements on the way up, and I knew Hassel was responsible for coal, wood, and oil. The water-pot had been filled the evening before, and he had only to push it to one side to make room for the kettle. This did not take long to boil, with the heat he had set going. The fire burned up so that it roared in the chimney. This fellow is not short of fuel. Strange what a hurry he is in to get that coffee ready. I thought breakfast was at eight, and it's not now more than a quarter past six. He grinds the coffee till his cheeks shake to and fro, incessantly. If the quality is in proportion to the quantity, it must be good enough. Devil take it, Lindstrom's morning greeting. This coffee mill is not worth throwing to the pigs. Might just as well chew the beans. It wouldn't take so long. And he is right. After a quarter of an hour's hard work, he has only ground just enough. Now it is half-past six. On with the coffee. Ah, oh, what a perfume! I would give something to know where Amundsen got it from. Meanwhile, the cook has taken out his pipe, and is smoking away gaily on an empty stomach. It does not seem to do him any harm. Hello, there's the coffee boiling over. While the coffee was boiling, and Lindstrom smoked, I was still wondering why he was in such a hurry to get the coffee ready. You ass, I thought, can't you see? 
Of course, he is going to give himself a drink of fresh hot coffee before the others are up. That's clear enough. When the coffee was ready, I sat down on a camp stool that stood in a corner and watched him. But I must say he surprised me again. He pushed the coffee kettle away from the fire and took down a cup from the wall, then went to a jug that stood on the bench and pulled out, would you believe it, a cup of cold tea. If he goes on in this way, we shall have surprises enough before evening, I thought to myself. Then he began to be deeply interested in an enamelled iron bowl which stood on a shelf above the range. The heat, which was now intense, I looked at the thermograph which hung from the ceiling, it registered 84 degrees Fahrenheit, did not seem to be sufficient for its mysterious contents. It was also wrapped up in towels and cloths, and gave me the impression of having caught a severe cold. The glances he threw into it from time to time were anxious. He looked at the clock and seemed to have something on his mind. Then suddenly I saw his face brighten. He gave a long, not very melodious whistle, bent down, seized a dustpan, and hurried out into the penthouse. Now I was really excited what was coming next. He came back at once with a happy smile all over his face and the dustpan full of coal. If I had been curious before, I was now anxious. I withdrew as far as possible from the range, sat down on the floor itself, and fixed my eyes on the thermograph. As I thought, the pen began to move upward with rapid steps. This was too bad. I made up my mind to pay a visit to the Meteorological Institute as soon as I got home, and tell them what I had seen with my own eyes. But now the heat seemed intolerable down on the floor where I was sitting. What must it be like? Heavens above, the man was sitting on the stove. He must have gone out of his mind. I was just going to give a cry of terror when the door opened and in came Amundsen from the room. I gave a deep sigh. Now it would be all right. The time was ten minutes past seven. Morning, Fatty. Morning. What's it like outside? Easterly breeze and thick when I was out, but that's a good while ago. This fairly took my breath away. He stood there with the coolest air in the world and talked about the weather, and I could take my oath he had not been outside the door that morning. How's it getting on today? Is it coming? Amundsen looks with interest at the mysterious bowl. Lindstrom takes another peep under the cloth. Yes, it's coming at last, but I've had to give it a lot today. Yes, it feels like it, answers the other, and goes out. My interest is now divided between it in the bowl and Amundsen's return, with the meteorological discussion that will ensue. It is not long before he reappears. Evidently the temperature outside is not inviting. Let's hear again, my friend. He seats himself on the camp stool beside which I am sitting on the floor. What kind of weather did you say it was? I prick up my ears. There is going to be fun. It was an easterly breeze and thick as a wall when I was out at six o'clock. Hmm. Then it has cleared remarkably quickly. It's a dead calm now and quite clear. Ah, uh, that's just what I should have thought. I could see it was falling light and it was getting brighter in the east. He got out of that well. Meanwhile, it was again the turn of the bowl. It was taken down from the shelf over the range and put on the bench. The various cloths were removed one by one until it was left perfectly bare. I could not resist any longer. I had to get up and look. And indeed it was worth looking at. The bowl was filled to the brim with golden yellow dough, 
full of air-bubbles, and showing every sign that he had got it to rise. Now I began to respect Lindstrom. He was a devil of a fellow. No confectioner in our native latitudes could have shown a finer dough. It was now 7.25. Everything seems to go by the clock here. Lindstrom threw a last tender glance at his bowl, picked up a little bottle of spirit, and went into the next room. I saw my chance of following him in. There was not going to be any fun out there with Amundsen, who was sitting on the camp-stool half asleep. In the other room it was pitch dark, and an atmosphere—no, ten atmospheres at least. I stood in the doorway and breathed heavily. Lindstrom stumbled forward in the darkness, felt for and found the matches. He struck one, and lighted a spirit-holder that hung beneath a hanging lamp. There was not much to be seen by the light of the spirit-flame, one could still only guess. Here, too, perhaps. They were sound sleepers, those boys. One grunted here, and another there. They were snoring in every corner. The spirit might have been burning for a couple of minutes, when Lindstrom had set to work in a hurry. He was off just as the flame went out leaving the room in black darkness. I heard the spirit-bottle and the nearest stool upset, and what followed, I don't know, as I was unfamiliar with the surroundings, but there was a good deal of it. I heard a click, I had no idea what it was, and then the same movement back again to the lamp. Of course he now fell over the stool he had upset before. Meanwhile there was a hissing sound and a stifling smell of paraffin. I was thinking of making my escape through the door when, suddenly, just as I suppose it happened on the first day of creation, in an instant there was light. But it was a light that defies description. It dazzled and hurt the eyes it was so bright. It was perfectly white and extremely agreeable when one was not looking at it. Evidently it was one of the two hundred candle Lux lamps. My admiration for Lindstrom had now risen to enthusiasm. What would I not have given to be able to make myself visible, embrace him, and tell him what I thought of him? But that could not be. I should not then be able to see life at Framheim as it really was. So I stood still. Lindstrom first tried to put straight what he had upset in his struggle with the lamp. The spirit had, of course, run out of the bottle when it fell and was now flowing all over the table. This did not seem to make the slightest impression on him. A little scoop with his hand, and it all landed on Johansen's clothes, which were lying close by. This fellow seemed to be as well off for spirit as for paraffin. Then he vanished into the kitchen, but reappeared immediately with plates, cups, knives, and forks. Lindstrom's laying of the breakfast-table was the finest clattering performance I have ever heard. If he wanted to put a spoon into a cup, he did not do it in the ordinary way. No, he put down the cup lifted the spoon high in the air, and then dropped it into the cup. The noise he made in this way was infernal. Now I began to see why Amundsen got up so early. He wanted to escape this process of laying the table, I expect. But this gave me at once an insight into the good humour of the gentleman in bed. If this had happened anywhere else, Lindstrom would have had a boot at his head. But here? They must have been the most peaceable men in the world. Meanwhile I had time to look around me. Close to the door where I was standing, a pipe came down to the floor. It struck me at once that this was a ventilating pipe. I bent down and put my hand over the opening. There was not so much as a hint of air to be felt. So this was the cause of the bad atmosphere. The next things that caught my eye were the bunks, nine of them, 
three on the right-hand side and six on the left. Most of the sleepers, if they could be regarded as such while the table was being laid, slept in bags, sleeping bags. They must have been warm enough. The rest of the space was taken up by a long table with small stools on two sides of it. Order appeared to reign. Most of the clothes were hung up. Of course, a few lay on the floor, but then Lindstrom had been running about in the dark, and perhaps he had pulled them down. On the table by the window stood a gramophone and some tobacco boxes and ashtrays. The furniture was not plentiful, nor was it in the style of Louis Quinze or Louis Seize, but it was sufficient. On the wall with the window hung a few paintings, and on the other portraits of the King, Queen, and Crown Prince Olaf, apparently cut out of an illustrated paper and pasted on blue cardboard. In the corner nearest the door on the right, where there was no bunk, the space seemed to be occupied by clothes, some hanging on the wall, some on lines stretched across. So that was the drying place, modest in its simplicity. Under the table were some varnished boxes. Heaven knows what they were for. Now there seemed to be life in one of the bunks. It was Visting, who was getting tired of the noise that still continued. Lindstrom took his time, rattling the spoons, smiling maliciously to himself, and looking up at the bunks. He did not make all this racket for nothing. Visting, then, was the first to respond, and apparently the only one. At any rate, there was not a sign of movement in any of the others. "'Good morning, Fatty. Thought you were going to stop there till dinner.' This is Lindstrom's greeting. "'Look after yourself, Olden. If I hadn't got you out, you'd have been asleep still.' That was paying him in his own coin. Visting was evidently not to be trifled with. However, they smiled and nodded to each other in a way that showed there was no harm meant. At last, Lindstrom had got rid of the last cup, and brought down the curtain on that act with the dropping of the final spoon. I thought now that he would go back to his work in the kitchen, but it looked as if he had something else to do first. He straightened himself, thrust his chin in the air, and put his head back, reminding me very forcibly of a young cockerel preparing to crow, and roared with the full force of his lungs, "'Turn out, boys, and look sharp!' Now he had finished his morning duty there. The sleeping bags seemed suddenly to awake to life, and such remarks as, "'That's a devil of a fellow!' or "'Shut up, you old chatterbox!' showed that the inhabitants of Framheim were now awake. Beaming with joy, the cause of the trouble disappeared into the kitchen. And now... One after the other they stick their heads out, followed by the rest of them. That must be Helmer Hansen, who was on the cure. He looks as if he could handle a rope. Ah, and there we have Olaf Olafsson Bjarland. I could have cried aloud for joy, my old friend from Holmenkollen. The great long-distance runner, you remember. And he managed the jump, too, fifty metres, I think, standing. If Amundsen has a few like him, he will get to the pole all right. And there comes Stuberud, the man the Aftenpost said was so clever at double-entry bookkeeping. As I see him now, he does not give me the impression of being a bookkeeper, but one can't tell. And here come Hassel, Johansson, and Prestrud. Now they're all up, and will soon begin the day's work. Stuberud! It is Lindstrom, putting his head in at the door. If you want any hot cakes, you must get some air down. Stubberud merely smiles. He looks as if he felt sure of getting them all the same. What was it he talked about? Hot cakes? They must be connected with the beautiful dough and the delicate, seductive smell of cooking that is now penetrating through the crack of the door. 
Stubberid is going, and I must go with him. Yes, as I thought. There stands Lindstrom in all his glory before the range, brandishing the weapon with which he turns the cakes, and in a pan lie three brownish-yellow buckwheat cakes, quivering with the heat of the fire. Heavens, how hungry it made me! I take up my old position so as not to be in anyone's way, and watch Lindstrom. He's the man. He produces hot cakes with astonishing dexterity. It almost reminds one of a juggler throwing up balls so rapid and regular is the process. The way he manipulates a cake slice shows a fabulous proficiency. With the skimmer in one hand he dumps fresh dough into the pan, and with the cake slice in the other he removes those that are done all at the same time. It seems almost more than human. There comes Visting, salutes, and holds out a little tin mug. Flattered by the honour, the cook fills his mug with boiling water, and he disappears into the penthouse. But this interruption puts Lindstrom off his jugglery with the hotcakes. One of them rolls down onto the floor. This fellow is extraordinarily phlegmatic. I can't make out whether he missed that cake or not. I believe the sigh that escaped him at the same instant meant something like, "'Well, we must leave some for the dogs.' And now they all come in single file with their little mugs, and get each a drop of boiling water. I get up, interested in this proceeding, and slip out with one of them into the penthouse, and so on to the barrier. You will hardly believe me when I tell you what I saw. All the polar explorers standing in a row, brushing their teeth. What do you say to that? So they are not such absolute pigs after all. There was a scent of stomatol everywhere. Here comes Amundsen. He has evidently been taking the meteorological observations, as he holds the anemometer in one hand. I follow him through the passage, and, when no one is looking, take the opportunity of slapping him on the shoulder and saying, A grand lot of boys! He only smiled, but a smile may often say more than many words. I understood what it meant. He had known that a long while, and a good deal more. End of section 16